This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Really, there isn't an argument about the quality of John Degada's work. He writes nonfiction essays. The writer David Foster Wallace called him one of the most significant U.S. writers to emerge in recent years. And back in 2003, he wrote this really powerful essay about the culture of suicide in Las Vegas. It was the story of a 16-year-old boy who had killed himself, Levi Presley. And just the first graph is gripping and, as you can tell, beautifully crafted. Here it is. On the same day in Las Vegas when 16-year-old Levi Presley jumped from the observation deck of the 1,149-foot tower of the Stratosphere Hotel and Casino, lap dancing was temporarily banned in the city's 34 licensed strip clubs. Archaeologists unearthed parts of the world's oldest bottle of Tabasco brand sauce from beneath a bar called Buckets of Blood, and a woman from Mississippi beat a chicken named Ginger in a 35-minute-long game of tic-tac-toe. And what you notice in that graph is the cadence in the writing and the numbers— How tall the tower, how long the game of tic-tac-toe, how many licensed strip clubs. The only thing is, not all of those numbers were accurate. A fact-checker named Jim Fingal was hired to go through the essay, and he found there were 29 strip clubs. So he suggested to gotta fix it. But for John, why does that matter, 29 or 31 or 34 Why does that matter to the larger truth of Levi's story? That part he hadn't changed. He says he chose 34 because he liked the rhythm. So they went back and forth and back and forth about details John had made up or moved around in the essay. And this debate went on for weeks and then years. It became a book where they included their email exchanges and conversations about the importance of facts and the importance of art. And then the book became a popular play on Broadway called, like the book, The Lifespan of a Fact. And it's opening tonight at the Pioneer Theatre Company. And there's this scene in the play where the character Jim Fingal, played here by John Croft, finally loses it. They've been working through some of the facts in John's essay, going through it line by line, and... John Degada, played here by Ben Cherry, is just hating this. And in this moment, they're fighting over a traffic jam. Was there actually a traffic jam on the day Levi died? This back and forth about the details, you'll see, play out here in this scene. Next, an accident caused a traffic jam on the north end of the strip. What the hell is wrong with that? It was a bad accident. No mention of this accident in the local papers and blogs. Do you have a source? A woman at the Aztec Inn who said she saw Levi fall. A woman? What woman? There was a woman. She told me about the traffic jam. Do you have notes from that interview? Do you have her name? I wrote down homeless lady. Ah, she was homeless. And traffic accident. This wasn't a formal interview. That's a problem. If it is, then it's your problem, not mine. It violates about ten different rules of journalistic integrity. About ten, Jim? What happened to accuracy? Or did ten just work well for the effect you wanted to achieve? Okay. What else? 
Epistemological problem. You say there were over a hundred tourists in five dozen cars. Epistemological problem? Do you know what that means? I have degrees in Latin and Greek. I know what it means. Do you know what it means? I know what it means. And what do you think you mean by it? Here's what I mean. You claim it's a traffic jam, and you claim that there were five dozen cars and one hundred people there. How can you know this? Was someone there counting? To say nothing of your claim that this was in fact a jam, because let's be clear, this was no jam. But let's assume that this was a jam, because you say it's a jam. You say it's a jam, so I think it's a jam. Right here where Baltimore Avenue comes in from the west and dead ends at Las Vegas Boulevard. You said so. Plus, I confirmed it on a map. And yes, Vegas Boulevard has six lanes and Baltimore has four. Five dozen cars means 60 cars. How do I know this? I did math. 60 cars divided by 10 lanes on each side means about three cars in each lane. Maybe four if we stretch it. Go ahead, stretch it. I wouldn't call that a jam, but again, I am going to bend over backwards and entrust my entire worldview to the deep poetic truth you're in contact with, that somehow two cars in front of me constitutes a jam. And 100 people sure sounds like a shit ton, but when you divide it over a total of 20 lanes of traffic, five whole people in each lane, even assuming all single occupancy vehicles, no cab passengers, no spouses, no children, no passengers of any kind, and everyone is driving some kind of a Cadillac super vehicle, that is no jam, my friend. No jam at all. No honking, no idling, no jam. Wow, not too jammy. So, knowing everything we know now about modern civil engineering and traffic patterns, how on earth can you claim that this is any kind of a jam? The woman at the Aztec Inn said there were about five dozen cars. Thank you. Thank you so much for that impeccable sourcing. Seriously. And there you have it. You get a sense of how this play works through all of these questions. Today on the program, we're having a conversation about the issues in the play, about truth versus accuracy and what role facts should and do play in the way we process stories and information. Joining us now on the program is Wes Grantham. He is the director of the production of The Lifespan of the Fact, which is premiering, as I said, tonight at Pioneer Theater Companies, joining us here in the studio. And Wes Granton, welcome to you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Let me, um, I guess I guess the thing that I wanted to ask you about right off the bat is I'm listening to this particular scene mm-hmm. as they're working through the minutia, which could be like the mind-numbing minutia of these things. And a lot of it is that way. Yeah. What a challenge that is for a director to make this come alive because it was a it was a hit for a reason. Right, right. Why is that appealing? Because it is. Well, I mean, the the play focuses so much on the debate between truth and fact yeah. and what the relationship might be between those two things. And so just listening to that scene now, it, it's easy to think that Jim Fingal and certainly John Degata in the play thinks that Jim Fingal is the antagonist. He's coming and picking apart this beautiful piece of art and how dare he and why is that important? Why does he do that? But I think what you learn by the end of the play, not to spoil anything, but that he's actually trying to protect it, that he really believes that if, if his job is to fortify the sort of integrity of the essay so that other people, people with less good intentions, mm-hmm. don't pull it apart and just rip it to shreds on the internet, on Twitter, you know, those types of things. But 
it's a long road to, to get there. Yeah. I think it's interesting that the Jim character you think is just going to be this pedantic, you know, mm-hmm. kind of snotty, recent Harvard grad who is just thinking about the details in a really simple-minded way. But as you said, he, he loves this writing. He yeah. loves this essay. He thinks this is really important because it gets to an essential truth that's there. Mm-hmm. He's just bothered by all the mixing and matching of the details. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it really does. He's very detail-oriented. They just assigned that, well, they may have assigned the wrong person to do sort of a cursory job because the character Jim Fingle may be the real person. Jim Fingle, if you you know look back at the, the book, is not that person. He's going to really check the facts. Yeah. It's interesting... Um, the the characters. Let's talk ab- ab- about the characters. Mm-hmm. Only three in the in the play. Yeah. Um, and one of the things we'll, we talked to John Degada, and we'll hear that conversation here in a moment. But is that it, they're not exactly the real John Degada and Jim Fingle. They're kind of uh, personas. Uh, John is more intense. Jim is more intense. All of those kinds of things. So. Talk a little bit about those characters and the way you were talking to the actors about playing them. Yeah, it's very clear when you approach even the book. Like, you know, they're very clear about the fact that they wrote slightly exaggerated versions of themselves in the book. And then there are three playwrights that adapted that book into a play. Yeah. Um, and so there are several sort of filters of persona um, that are helping us try to get to a a theatrical truth, um, it you know, so that we can really have this debate about um, truth versus fact and and truth versus art and um, where those two things intersect and where the balance is between those things. So I, I had to remind the actors that you can only play what's on the page. Yeah. You can only do what's in the play. You can't think about what's in the book or even what's in the, the essay too much. Tell us about Emily. So Emily is the one fictional character in the play. Um, there was an, an editor um, in the original story when he wrote the, when John DeGotta wrote the essay in 2003. Um, but it wasn't Emily. It may have been some version of yeah. Emily. I don't even know if it, um, if it was a woman, um, but her name wasn't Emily. And so she really is a person that, that believes very strongly in this essay she thinks it's going to save her magazine because, you know, magazines are failing. journalism's being challenged at every turn. Yeah. Um, and so she thinks that this is this is the one that's going to sort of save her her magazine. And then she assigns this intern to it and, you know, chaos ensues. Yeah. Why does she think this is going to save the magazine? Say a little bit more about that, because she sees in it such beautiful craft. Right. That that he is going to get to, or John has gotten to, some essential question about suicide. Like it's yeah. so beautiful that he's almost not not solved it, right. but he's figured out what's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Just I think that he he's gotten to the core of of that that question that all human beings have at some point about just the struggles of life and. Is it, is it all worth it? Um, and obviously there are people deal with that question in, in big and small ways. And I think that the essay so beautifully sort of um, gives this portrait 
of this boy who dealt with that question and in a very tragic way. And so I think because um, of the, the, like you said, the craft of the article, she just feels like it, it must reach the public. Don't, don't give too much away, but explain. Emily feels something very personal here in this. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a little bit veiled in the play. You know, people make assumptions. One of the great things about this play is that um, they play with the assumptions one might make based on the facts. Yeah. So in the play, you're given some information about what may or may not be Emily's true connection, personal connection to this article. And the authors kind of mess with the audience a little bit on that subject um, to great effect. I wonder if the um, the idea of the um, – like why was it such a hit do you think? Like, and, and how does that um, relate to the moment we're in? Right now, because clearly those are connected in some way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the play, the essay um, came out in 2003, and then there was the book, which was after that. And then, you know, it wasn't until 2017 yeah. that the play made its way to Broadway. It kind of went dormant for a minute. It did. The right. story kind of went dormant. Yeah. But then I think we, after the 2016 election, we, we enter a world where we're questioning facts a bit more and we're entering what they what's being called the sort of post-fact era and um i think that that makes the play really relevant to right now and makes us really kind of look at how we deal with facts as a society right now uh, uh, director wes grantham is with us stay with us um we're gonna have you back here in just a moment uh, when we get back from a break we're gonna have a conversation with John Degada, how he's thinking about all of this. We should mention that Lifespan of the Fact premieres tonight at Pioneer Theatre Company. It runs through November, is it 16th? 16th yeah. November 16th. We'll give you more details about that a little bit later on the program. We'll take a break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Hey, it's Lee Hale, host of the Preach Podcast. On our latest episode, hear a story of an unexpected conversion. Because for many of us, our college years are when we fall away from the faith we're raised in. But for Satine Tashnizi, the opposite happened. I said, I'm ready. She's like, what are you ready for? I said, I'm ready to convert to Islam. And then she like freaked out. Find Preach wherever you get your podcasts or at preachpod.org. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're profiling the latest production at the Pioneer Theater Company. It's the play The Life, Lifespan of a Fact. It's about the ongoing argument between the essayist John Degada and the young man chosen to fact check his essay about, well, about suicide culture in Las Vegas. The argument became the book and then the hit Broadway play Lifespan of a Fact, and it opens Tonight at the Pioneer Theater Company, it runs through November 16th. Now, we wanted to talk to John DeGott about how he's feeling about all of this now. When we reached him in Iowa, where he lives, it's clear it is still, well, he's still committed to his art, of course, and to the distinctions between journalistic articles and nonfiction essays. 
But you could tell he was also a little hesitant, wary even, about talking openly about how he feels these days. And probably for good reason, because since the book and now the play have come out, John DeGott has been called all sorts of names by the press, like ceaselessly self-aggrandizing, outrageous. People have even said his logic is, this is how they put it, barely coherent. But the thing is, the John DeGotta in the book and in the play is not exactly the real thing. DeGotta and the fact checker and co-writer Jim Fingal made up, as we were talking about earlier, larger-than-life characters for themselves in the book and the play, more dramatic versions of themselves. And that's where we began in our conversation with John DeGotta. When we decided we wanted to do a book, we, we looked over our exchanges at, at that point, which had been entirely utilitarian. We were just trying to fact check this thing. Yeah. Um, and, and we were debating and arguing a little bit, but we'd gotten to know each other and gotten to like each other and we're largely agreeing about a lot, <laughs> about a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, so when we, we decided to, to do the book, we knew that it needed drama. It, we knew that it needed conflict. And so we allowed our characters to um, become obnoxious. And mm. in truth, we thought both characters were being made obnoxious. Yeah. It turns out <laughs> people only perceived the John character as obnoxious and the the Jim fact checker character became a hero. Yeah. It's, it yeah. seems, but we wait, wait, wait. We, Why wasn't it perceived yeah. that way? Because that seems to get to an essential truth here. Like mm-hmm. the fact that that the John character comes across as just sort of loose with the facts, not concerned about that, and Jim comes off as this noble figure trying to get at actual truth. I mean, that has to bother you, of course. Yes, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it bothers me in the same way. Um, it bothers me in the same way the character in the play does in that I might be the only person who sees the play who recognizes that the character isn't me. Um, but I'm still bothered by the fact that we share a name, um, because I can't be at every performance and, and announce, by the way, it's just a character. But on the other hand, like I, I, um, as a writer, I love the experiment of the book. I yeah. just as as you said, I love the experiment of um, putting out this book that is about um, the necessity. I would argue for uh, literary essays to sometimes, um, in a in a trustworthy way, alter the facts for the sake of a larger story. Um, we were doing that with our characters, and mm-hmm. yet, um, while people recognized the argument that was being made. They didn't recognize that the form the book was <laughs> was, yeah. uh, was taking in the, in the shape of those characters um, was doing the, the same thing. And that's, that's very fascinating. It's frustrating on a personal level because I am, you know, the guy that they think that character is. But it's as a writer and as someone who cares about this genre and cares about um, maintaining its ability to move artistically the way that fiction and poetry and drama and um, song do. Um, 
it's fascinating and it is also a little uh, frustrating, yeah. but um, I mostly just find it interesting. <laughs> you, what, it sounds like you've just conceded the point right now. Like you, you, just that this is because you say, you say that the fact that people believe the persona um, yeah. proves how we approach nonfiction. We mm-hmm. see it differently than we see fiction, than we see poetry yeah. or drama. Ex- mm-hmm. Explain what you mean there. Well, we're signaled when we approach nonfiction by that very term, nonfiction. Yeah. Over the past yeah. 50 or 60 years, since that term's largely come to define everything that falls beneath that giant umbrella, we've, we've come to believe that what we're engaging with in um, biography and in memoir and uh, in travelogue and journalism, which falls under that as well, um, and in wildly experimental essays too, that it's, it's all fact-based because of that term nonfiction. And that's not a term that we used to use. We, we, yeah. This is a really, really recent use. And, and in fact, it wasn't coined until um, around, I think, 1903 by a librarian. And it was coined for, you know, horrible reasons to uh, encourage library patrons to not read fiction, um, wow. uh, which is a larger story. But it's just it's – a, it's a gross term that doesn't really describe what is actually happening in the genre. But mm-hmm. because we're all under that umbrella together, all yeah. of these practitioners in lots of different forms, and along with us is this very important social sacred form of journalism – there's, uh, I think, a sense that, you know, we've all got to follow the, stand- the same standards, therefore. Mm, mm. You come from a background of, um, or at least you've sort of worked through Greek and Latin texts. So I'm wondering, mm-hmm. would writers from an earlier time, mm-hmm. what would they have made of this conversation that's playing out now? They would have been perplexed by it, it seems. Uh, some of them would have, and some of them would not have, right? Mm. There's the, the great example of Herodotus, who's, who's um, identified by some as the first historian in literary history. But he was followed soon after by a writer named Thucydides, um, who others recognize as the first um, true historian. And that's because Herodotus, we have subsequently learned, kind of made up some stuff, but also as the years have passed, Archaeologists have discovered that maybe he wasn't making up that much stuff, but he just wrote about it in such fantastic ways that it was hard to believe. While Thucydides um, was absolutely methodical in writing about the Peloponnesian War to such an extent that he actually fought on both sides of that war. Um, And so he used that to his advantage to tell a story that's wonderfully believable and and completely rich with detail. but he too made up some stuff. We get from Thucydides a famous uh, funeral oration of uh, of uh, Pericles, which people largely understand he completely made up. I don't know how how what they would think about this conversation. Yeah. I'm working on a book right now about the Greek writer Plutarch, um, who is celebrated as. Um, uh, the writer of a, a book entitled Parallel Lives in which he he um, writes biographies of famous Greek and Roman figures and sets them side by side. 
But as um, when archaeology started emerging as a real science in the 19th century, historians started to realize that he was really inaccurate in some of the information that he was using to create these profiles. Um, and so he fell out of favor as a writer. And then early in the 20th, we came to approach Plutarch differently. We came to approach him the way that he actually asks us to approach him in the book. He says several times in the book, Parallel Lives, I am not writing history, I am writing lives. Yeah. And we lost sight of that for centuries. But now we celebrate him as a literary writer and not as a historian. We don't rely on him for information about the past. Are you asking the same thing of writers in some ways? I'm asking for some essays, not all essays, yeah. to be read with the same kind of generosity as we would poetry or fiction yeah. or drama. You um, d Does it bother you that the sort of knee-jerk perception is that you think facts don't matter? Because that's not at all what you think. Um, and you were up front, in, for example, in this essay that um, is the, at the heart of Lifespan of a Fact. You're up front about the inaccuracies to your editors. You, you knew about them. You let them know about them. You just wanted to keep them for, for all kinds of important reasons for you, rhythm, um, other kinds of things. Um, but it must bother you that you're perceived as sort of, well, I don't know, the enemy of fact or something. I'm certainly disheartened by it. Yeah. Um, as a person interested in art, I am fascinated by the reaction um, because it seems to be disregarding the art. Yeah. I really like this play. And there's a moment in it that is uh, very true to life. I think it's actually something I've, I've said several times myself, and it might even be in the book. But it's also a moment in the play whenever I see it perform that makes me groan mm -hmm. um, because its intention is never relayed. And the audience, in every show that I've seen at least so far, um, always reacts, I would say, incorrectly. And it's a moment when um, John is having an argument with the editor, and in frustration, he says, I'm not interested in accuracy. I'm interested in truth. I wrote to Levi's spirit, not to his body. I'm not interested in accuracy. I am interested in truth. Inevitably, in every show, the audience bursts out laughing. <laughs> they think it's the most outrageous statement. And, wow. and I think that says, that, that sort of speaks a little bit also to the project of the book that, you know, we meant for this to be a real discussion, but a performance of a discussion. And it was taken as um, a complete facsimile of how things actually went, went down, despite the fact that Jim and I, my collaborator, um, were on the radio frequently, mm -hmm. we were doing interviews, we were giving readings together, and we would say, we are not these people. But but audiences insisted on reading us as those people. And that's, it's frustrating, but also just amazing. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Well, and if it was, if it was like that before 2016, <laughs> right? I mean, it's gotta be, 
it's got to be um, accelerated the 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 reaction to that that particular line or that that idea now. How is it playing out in this time? Because this seems really accelerated. The the ideas of you know f- facts versus truth. Sure, I would certainly agree. I mean, I think a lot of us agree um, or or feel the same frustrations, right? That um, we don't seem to have leaders who are representing us in in ways that um, we would morally agree with or are following ethical rules that that we would prefer. Um, And that, you know, maybe the... um, the solution is to just, uh, you know, uh, clear cut everything and um, return to um, a black and white sense of um, of facts, which, uh, you know, in one arena of our lives we desperately need. The risk, though, is that, we, you know, we, we, we pull up the flowers with the weeds, right? Yeah, that, yeah. that there's, there is a, there is a, a form of the essay that is not trying to speak to uh, the same issues that journalism yeah. is, and that we need to rely on journalism to do. And I and I think it's um it's risky to say maybe these days, but I will say it. I think you know some of the responsibility um, lies with us as readers and consumers to just sort of understand that not everything that we're reading is uh, the same as journalism right. is attempting to do the same things as right. journalism, right. but that gets tricky, right? When, mm. when there is actual journalism that is is trying to trick us, that it's frustrating. Well, you've 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 talked about um, that people read or you read or some of us read an essay for a different reason than a work of journalism. It sounds like you're worried that that the essay may be a casualty of this moment. Do you think that's true? Are you wor- are you worried about that? I always think the essay is going to be a casualty of anything that's going on because I I tend to think of the essay as, you know, the ugly step sibling in in the family of poetry and fiction. It's mm-hmm. not a form that we understand very well and that's simply because we aren't we aren't exposed to it in school in the same way that we are fiction and poetry and and so it's easy therefore to come to it with certain assumptions yeah. uh, that aren't really, you know, based in um, the, the history or the heritage of the genre. So, yeah, I think it will be a little bit of a casualty, but it's it's been around for about 3,000 years, so I think it'll survive. <laughs> so um, I want to back up just a bit. So your original essay was about 20 pages, 20 pages. Jim produces this document with corrections and questions of a hundred pages. How did you react to the, just that at the, the moment? Yeah, it was it was actually one hundred thirty. Wow! And yeah, and <laughs> I mostly thought it was hilarious, mm-hmm. and um, and that's simply because I I I knew what problems existed in the essay, and I hadn't hidden them it's not like jim had had like exposed me or anything yeah. um and you know w- one story that i think most people don't know is that i actually funded a trip for jim to go to vegas to 
check out some stuff and gather more material because there's a moment in the essay when I'm trying to walk in the footsteps of the essay subject, a boy named Levi Presley. And so I sent Jim to walk in my footsteps, walking in this boy's footsteps, to just gather more material and and more possibilities of um, mistakes. So the 130 pages were, uh, I mean, it was surprising, but it wasn't, I didn't find them frightful. Let me ask you finally, uh, one of the things you've talked about was that after all of this, after going through the the book and now the the play, that this has helped you understand, um, as you've put it, where we need to go when reading this genre of nonfiction. I do think that it would be helpful if more essayists uh, came forward in the text or in notes and said, so here on page whatever, I did this little thing and I and I did it so that, you know, this larger idea um, could be revealed. And I, I don't think it really alters the reality of what we're dealing with. It, I, I did it as an artist to, to you know, help your reading experience. Um, the more that we get used to seeing that as readers, I think the less outraged and shocked we'll be and the more used to uh, this idea of of the essay being an art form we we will become. We should just be a, a, a little more open about some of the changes that uh, that occur because it's it's actually in the service of a genre that um, we're the inheritors of and that our forebears were also engaged in. I'm actually really proud of of uh, working in the same genre as someone like Plutarch, who was really misunderstood, but is a glorious, glorious, glorious artist. And now we're finally able to appreciate his work because we're not expecting him to report the news to us. We're we're expecting him to tell us good stories. John Degada, we spoke with him earlier this week. He and Jim Fingal co-authored the book The Lifespan of a Fact, charged their argument about truth and accuracy in Degada's essay, What Happens There. Of course, now there's a play. It was a hit Broadway play, which is now opening at the Pioneer Theater Company, The Lifespan of a Fact. It opens tonight runs through November 16th. We'll take another break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, we're talking about the play Lifespan of a Fact, which is opening tonight at the Pioneer Theater Company. It's the story of the ongoing argument between award-winning essayist John Degada and his fact-checker Jim Fingal about the importance of facts in essays. We have with us the director, Wes Grantham. He is uh, here with us in the studio. And also joining us now is the journalist, Matthew LaPlante, who's an associate professor of Utah State University. And uh, Matthew LaPlante, welcome to you. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for being with us. I guess I wanted to begin, did... Did John Degata do anything wrong? Zero wrong. Really? Yeah, and I'm a journalist, right? Like, I'm, I'm 
I try Do you feel weird saying that? Like he did zero wrong. I mean, he fudged a lot of the facts. I feel like I'm going to say a a lot of things that make me feel weird in this conversation (laughs) because as a journalist, as a journalist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like the the idea of trying to pick apart fact and truth is is a thorny and tricky subject. And and yeah, I've been I've been thinking about that a lot since I read this play. So we'll break it down as we go. But so there's truth, right? The truth, at least according to Don DeGada about about Levi Presley and the fact that he had committed suicide as a 16-year-old in, in the, you know, on the Vegas Strip, there was some essential truth there that he had gotten to, that he had absolutely reported. And that Wes and I were talking about before, that Emily, the editor, is like, he gets it. He mm-hmm. nailed this thing. It's really hard to get at this. So there's an essential truth there. Um, so why does it matter that there were... 34 or 31 or 29 licensed strip clubs. So how are you thinking about the essential truth and the other stuff? I think to me it matters, even though I don't think that there was anything necessarily wrong. The guy is an essayist. He defines himself as an essayist. right? To me it matters because for the very same reasons that Finkel had was this thing is going to get picked apart. Mm-hmm. Right, because if if we present it as a work of fact, it is going to be picked apart, yeah. and if it hurts people in the process, it's going to do damage as well as sharing this essential truth. That I think that's why it matters. It's there's some beautiful moments, um, and in the in the play, Wes, where he is talking about like. Like we had mentioned, the thirty-four and the thirty-one, and he right, just talks right. about it. He he just liked the rhythm of it, mm-hmm. but then he also talks about how he likes the cadence of the numbers, the way they lay. He lays them out. That's important to him. And Matthew, you're sort of not, nodding your head because you're a writer. You get how those things matter, where you place the matter in terms of the way you write them and the way they're delivered. I mean that that stuff really mattered to him. Yeah, I mean, it matters to as a theater artist. It's like we, it, the way that someone moves across the stage, the what they're wearing, the how much pattern they have in their clothing, like all of those things really matter to the artist that gets to make those choices. Yeah. And so to have someone say like, "Oh, that's not really what he wore on this day," well, no, no, it's not. But we didn't say it was, you know. Yeah. So. Matthew, what is this about? Like, what is this discussion about? Because it's playing out at a very particular time when we are deeply concerned about about norms and about facts and the way they're disseminated and the way we look at the media and whether we trust the media and what does that mean to be trustworthy. All of those things are at play here. I think we're at a particular time in our history. And the really interesting thing is this was all written before this particular time in our history. I know, history. isn't it? But – but also I would think like we didn't start worrying about this stuff when Donald Trump was elected president. We didn't – it didn't just become a thing because of Donald Trump. It was a thing. Donald Trump actually took advantage of the thing, of a world in which we were becoming more distrustful of facts, a world in which we were creating our own truths increasingly mm-hmm. because of the bubbles that are around mm-hmm. us. Um and now it's all come to a head, or it feels like, God, I hope it's come to a head, right? <laughs> I hope this is where we kind of start to try to sort things out and create the new systems that we need to make sense of this world, as opposed for 
to it getting even more chaotic. But I think that's why it's it's such a particular piece of art in this piece of time that has the potential to at least start discussions about what we mean when we say truth, what we mean when we say fact, what we mean when we say I've taken artistic license. Um, You know, I was struck by this idea of nonfiction that was being discussed earlier. Like we've defined many, many genres by what they're not, Mm -hmm. but not by what they are. And that's, and all of a sudden we're having to deal with that. Well, good. Like, this is good. It's good to have these discussions now. It's so interesting. There's so many platforms now for uh, getting information out there. And it used to be, and it wasn't so long ago, that there was, there was kind of one place. Like, it, there was, it was the purview of journalists. And to God is not one. Like, he's not, that's not my thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, I want to say Cronkite, but then I'll say the New York Times and whatever else sort of, you know... A sort of institution of record, that's where you went for truth. But now we're in a social media environment where people are reporting their own kinds of quote-unquote stories on Instagram pages and Snapchats and, you know, wherever, uh, t- t- Twitter feeds and stuff like that. So the idea of what, like, who's running this stuff down? <laughs> and who's, t- I mean, how are you thinking about that? Nobody is, but I don't think that's necessarily the problem that a lot of people in my profession seem to be pulling their hair out over. Um, One of the things that I like to point out is that we tend to think that there's this golden age of journalism. And when we think about it, it always like it's always centered on this time in in the early 1970s when Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein were on the case. Yeah. And following you, the money. Right. Following the money. Yeah. Doing doing journalism the way it's supposed to be done. And we talk about Cronkite and we like we once trusted these people. But if you look at the front page of the Washington Post the day after the Watergate break-in, there's 10 stories on the front page of the Post that day. One of them is about the Watergate break-in. It wasn't written by Woodward and Bernstein yet. That was, you know, it, was, it was a small story at yeah. that time. But it yeah. did make the front page of the Post. Right. There were nine other stories. And in the totality of those 10 stories – there were 84 sources. 79 of them were men. Five of them were women. And of those five women, one didn't even rate a last name. She was only referred to as Aunt Bertha. That is the truth as we kind of like conceptualized it, as the media conceptualized it back when facts were facts. But that wasn't true. That's not what our world looked like. Because so many voices were being left out of the larger story. And how can you possibly call that true? How can you possibly call that true? Maybe the facts were checked. I think they were checked. The Washington Post has always been pretty good at that. But whose facts were they? There is a... um, How do you see the difference between facts and information? Is there a distinction? Do you know what I mean? Like the, because that's one of the things that – like what's true? What is – I mean again, it gets back to, to God as a central truth about here is a profile of the culture in Las Vegas at a particular time. Um, and who cares about some of the other stuff? There's an essential truth here. But when does it matter I guess? I, I think it matters when it's held out to be a fact, right? Yeah. Like when facts are held out to be a fact, then it, then – it matters because then it becomes debatable, right? And if you can't point to a source, if you can't point to your notes, it does become problematic. And it's more problematic now maybe than ever before Um, Mm -hmm. because – and this is why I don't fret about the social media world, right? Like I'm not worried about the fact that people are telling stories on Instagram and Twitter and everything else now because 
we have a better ability today than ever before to check those essential pieces, those essential pieces of information yeah. that we call facts. So we're all fact checkers in some ways. We should be. Right. And I think we're getting there. I, I think we're getting there. I, I don't think we're there yet. I think we're in a very messy time right now. Um, but I'm not lamenting this time. I think it's a really exciting time. So we're headed in the right direction in some ways, you think? God, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard to see, right? It is hard to see. And, and if um, – but, but if I wasn't hopeful about this, I mean, just like what's the point then? Yeah. I wondered, Wes, for you, I know you're trying to get a play staged for tonight, so you may right. not be thinking about these big, big things, but are you thinking about th- these larger issues as you're getting this put together? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the play kind of – it's great that the play is being done in so many places because I think these discussions are important to have. And I think you – I think it is on everyone's mind right now, and um, I think that the – you know, we talked a little bit earlier about how there was a gap between when the essay came out and when the play was. Um, and I think that we hopefully are getting to a place where we are being more discerning. We're asking more questions. We are investigating things and being more intrepid about um, seeking the truth in some ways. And and I, th- I hope the play is just another way to kind of get people in that mindset and to leave the theater just questioning, not just not taking everything that they hear on read on social media or hear in the news at face value that they're they're just a little bit more discerning and not just taking it as the truth. Let me play another scene from the play because um, Matthew, I want to get you to respond to something that the the editor John's editor Emily Penrose in the play um, mentions. She's played here by Constance Macy, and she takes in. The, the scene here, she's taking John through the realities of journalism today. Even though he says he's not a journalist, of course, Emily tells him that if he's writing for her magazine, they're, they're still accountable to journalistic standards. You really need to stop treating me like I'm a journalist, Emily. I'm not a journalist. I'm an essayist. Since antiquity, respected authors have regularly arranged and nudged details to create a closer understanding. Writers like Herodotus, Cicero, Seneca, and Plutarch, St. Augustine, Lamb, De Quincey, Thoreau, Defoe, Orwell, Didion, Sontag. I'm done. Oh, are you? Because I have all the time in the world to sit here and listen to you list the entire canon of the expository essay. You may or may not be a journalist, but I am. And my magazine, like it or not, is going to be judged by journalistic standards. We need to look like we have considered every potential inconsistency. We need to make a good faith effort. I'm not the one who's lost faith. Let's just get through this meeting. Meeting? With him? Why? Because he is the fact checker. Fire him. Fire him. He's poison to the creative process. If attorneys get involved, do you know how that will look? Wait. Attorneys? It's one thing for me not to know. But will you look at that paper trail? We at least have to go through the motions. I fire him. He goes public. His attorney or publicist, his attention-hungry girlfriend, whatever, they draft a narrative. And I... We are all over social media for the wrong reasons. A narrative of willful negligence. He scares you that much. Your essay is important. People will care. People will ask questions. You understand what it is to stare into the... The abyss. 
the barrel of a gun. Don't finish my sentences. If this happens, this is a career ender for both of us. Listen, I have a duty to my audience, my publisher, my advertisers. This isn't a business to me. It's not a business. It is also a business. The whole industry is falling down around me. Ad sales through the floor, an aging audience, circulation literally dying. We sell high-end ads because of cutting-edge writing, writing shareholders called monetized content. But the entire enterprise comes down to money. Trust, John. It comes down to trust. Where is he? The basement. I don't have a basement. No basement. Not in Vegas. There's a hard caliche layer. What is a hard caliche layer? A hard sedimentary layer of calcium carbonate and other impermeable materials. That's a closet. Jim, did you just hear our entire conversation? I really tried to pretend I was in a basement. Jim's hiding there in the closet <laughs> in that scene. What is Matthew? Respond to Emily's essential point that. Um, because you don't agree that journalism is failing. It's going down the tubes if they're not careful. You, you have a kind of a different perspective. No, I don't. I, I'm, look, uh, some newspapers are failing. Some magazines are failing. Um, some traditional forms of media are certainly failing in a business sense. And they're thriving in other places. We're reading more words than we ever have before. We just don't happen to be reading them in the ways we are reading them. And we haven't figured out how to do this monetized content thing very well yet. But there are more people writing about things that they hold to be true than ever before. That is the definition of journalism. I'm writing about something. I believe this something to be fact. That's all there is. And there's more people doing that than ever before. The people who are making their way in the world doing it are struggling increasingly, and they're having to worry about the things that Emily says she worries about in this scene. Um, and I feel for her in that way, and also I'm like furious at this character also because she doesn't appear to care about it until the gosh darn intern creates a paper trail. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's and, true. and that's problematic because that's not the point that you should start caring about whether something is or is not factual. Let me ask you finally, we've got about a minute left, but you, you've, you have this kind of analogy I wanted to get you to respond to, and I hope it's not too little time to do it, but you said we need to start viewing content the way we view cars. Yeah, so, um, okay, the, the basic thing is this, and I'll try to do it quickly. Um, when I go to a new car lot, there's a certain expectation, right? Like, like the brand tells me something about the car. The fact that it's a new car, the fact that the dealer is certified in this way or that way tells me something. And then as I get further and further away from a new car lot and go like, now I'm on a used car lot. Now I'm buying a used car off a of Craigslist. Now I'm buying, right? Like you have to adjust your expectations about what is going to be true about that car and what is not. <laughs> um, but and that's even, how we have to do it these right. days. And even on a new car lot, I'm a little bit skeptical. And I think we should treat our media the same way. Matthew LaPlante, he is an associate professor at Utah State University. Thanks for coming all the way down. Thank you. I really appreciate that, Wes. Grantham directed The Lifespan of a Fact at Pioneer Theater Company. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. The show opens tonight, runs through November 16th. You can get details on our website, RadioWest.org. Radio West is a production of KUER. Our thanks to our intern, Natu Twe. The program produced by Benjamin Bombard, Ali Viarta, and Tim Slover. Christy Miners is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.